0: Uh, Turn with me in your Bibles, the book of Luke, chapter 20. That's where we're going to be diving in this morning. And, you know, maybe you've heard this before, but they say there's three kinds of people uh, in any situation that goes on. Uh, Those who make things happen, those who watch things happen, and those who ask, what happened? (laughs) You know, as we have studied and followed along with Jesus in Luke, uh, I would have to say, honestly, the vast majority of people that were watching Jesus' ministry probably fit into category number three. They were asking the question, what in the world is happening here? Uh, so many were absolutely clueless about Christ, and that's sort of stunning. You know, they, they say that hindsight's 2020. Obviously, we have the benefit of looking back in time. We know how the story turns out. But when you stop and think about it, how much more clear could Jesus have been about who he is and what he was up to than the way he was in his earthly ministry. Uh, I mean, you want to talk about clear proclamation that the fact that we are a visited planet, that God himself walked among us in the person of Jesus. Jesus left that uh, absolutely beyond the realm of debate or doubt. Uh, he backed up those statements that he made, that he has seen me, has seen the Father, for instance, by doing miracles unprecedented. In the the history of mankind, not just casting out demons or, or healing the sick or or telling nature uh, what to do at a particular moment, he even raised the dead uh, with a word, with a touch. Uh, how could you miss this authentication of Jesus' words? Yeah. You know, on, on top of it, they had the testimony of prophecy predictions made hundreds, if not thousands of years before the time Jesus came on the scene. And bam, 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 Jesus was fulfilling one after another. And yet, the vast majority of people had uh, an awful lot of questions. In fact, the vast majority of people, we find out in retrospect, flat out missed Messiah when he came. How is that possible? Well, let me tell you something. It wasn't possible because of deception. That wasn't what kept most people away from Jesus. You know what kept most people away from Jesus? And it's such an important thing to grasp because the same thing keeps people away from Jesus right now. It wasn't deception, it was distraction. There were other things that caught their mind's eye that captured their hearts that they desired more than a relationship with our Lord. Earthly things cause them to forget about the eternal things. And the rest, as they say, is history. You know, this morning in Luke chapters 20 and 21, Jesus is going to identify three major distractions that kept not only his disciples a bit in the dark, but kept other people outside the kingdom of God looking in. And as Jesus identifies these distractions that kept people from truly understanding who he is and what he wants to do in life. We're going to see that he not only is going to provide the diagnosis, but he's also going to provide the prescription. We're going to see exactly how we can make sure that we aren't the next victims of being distracted and missing out on those wonderful opportunities God wants to give us each and every day to deepen and experience the love of Jesus personally. Well, if you were with us last time, we know that this uh, section of the book of Luke, dramatic stuff indeed. The shadow of the cross is looming larger and larger on Jesus' horizon. It's his final week in Jerusalem. And opposition to Jesus is growing by leaps and bounds. If you were with us last time, we, we talked about Jesus being put on the hot seat. Uh, he was uh, spiritually assaulted by a number of different groups the Pharisees and the Herodians the religious conservatives of those days and the religious liberals if you will of those days the let's go along to get along with the powers that be crowd and uh, the individuals who thought they were holier than than anyone else in society boy they agreed on one thing Jesus had to go and so they tried to catch him with trick questions following that the Sadducees the religious aristocracy, if you will, the ones in charge of running the temple itself, not the country bumpkins that would come from, say, the Dead Sea area or up in Galilee, the ones with five initials after their names, the ones who were somebody, the A-listers. They tried to put Jesus down with their patented uh, destroy any hope of a resurrection unanswerable question, and Jesus knocked it out of the park. then Jesus turned the tables we saw he had a question for them in verse 41 we read how can they say that the Christ is the son of David now David himself said in the book of Psalms the Lord said to my Lord sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool therefore David calls him Lord how then is he his son we're told in the other gospel accounts that after he asked that question no one dared ask him another They were, uh, this is a tough one. Because in order for Messiah to be David's son and David's Lord, another scripture had to be fulfilled. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. 700 years before the first Noel, these words were written. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel which means God is with us. The only answer to the mystery of Psalm 118, by the way, this passage about the Lord said to my Lord, these were songs that were sung in the Passover celebration. These were things they were saying to one another at that time of year, and Jesus said, you're missing the point. How do they miss the point? Well, then Jesus, I think, launches into exactly why so many missed the point. That's where we pick up our study in verse 45. It says, then in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples. Now, notice the focus that Jesus is taking here. He's speaking this not to his foes, but to his friends, not to the great undecideds, not to the seekers, if you will, but to the ones who'd already made up their mind about Christ, his disciples, his committed learners. He said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses and, for a pretense, make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And he looked up, and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he also saw a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So he said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in their offerings for God, but she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations. He said, These things which you see, the days come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Boom. Heavy? You better believe it. And heavy, especially when we begin to understand why Jesus deals with these issues at this moment, at this time in his ministry. We're told then, and let's face it, Bible Study 101, whenever you're going through the word and you see the word then, you should always ask the when the then is referring to. When is the then being referred to? Well, Passover week. The when is Jesus in the temple. The when is Jesus going head to head. With his committed adversaries the one who's wanted to put him down and put him away then in the hearing of all the people he said to his disciples as we mentioned this is going to his disciples his committed followers beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes now why is he saying this to his disciples well before we launch into where the scribes got off base here and where they got distracted spiritually We have to remember something. When we read a section of scripture like that, especially Jesus denouncing the the, the religious mucky mucks of his day, it's very easy for us to take a step back and say, oh, well, I would have never behaved that way. Oh, these awful people, these religionists who are out there, these self-satisfied, proud, puffed up individuals. Boy, I'm sure glad I'm not like that. Boy, as soon as you say those words, let me tell you something. I've discovered something in my walk with God. You know, I I don't know a lot uh, uh, about walking with the Lord. The longer I walk with the Lord, the the more I realize how little I really know. But I do know this. Whenever I say, boy, I'm glad I'm not like that, get ready to duck. (laughs) Because We are painfully like that how many of you are familiar with one of those uh, wonderful scriptures that were given in the Word of God that is just like a, a spiritual lifesaver to so many people 1st Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13 how many of you know that one just I mean you could recite it off the, oh boy he's gonna call on me you know I'm not gonna call on you but <laughs> great scripture to know no temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to God and God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may endure it. Well, you want to talk about a scripture, you should write on a three-by-five card, slap it on the fridge with a vegetable magnet. That's one of those great scriptures. Because sooner or later, you're going to find yourself applying that, right? But the, the passage that makes that scripture worth remembering is actually the verse that leads into it. You know what it says? It says, let the one who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Well, when we read about Jesus kind of laying out the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious intelligentsia of his day in lavender in his ministry, we have a tendency to want to step back and go, oh, you know, boy, I'm glad Jesus. Go, you go get him, Jesus, because that's just not me. Well, be really careful. Listen how Jesus describes where these guys got off the track and see if, well, maybe it might sound uh, frighteningly familiar. Beware of the scribes who desire. Now notice that word desire there. Who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts. Who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These shall receive greater condemnation. Now, Now notice Jesus says, Beware of them. Why? Because they desire to go around in the robes, the kind of clothing that sets them apart as a holy person. They desire the perks and the bennies that come from being identified as a holy man. You know, the best seats in the synagogues. One of these Pharisees and scribes would come in and You know, the regular synagogue people, often the times the synagogues would be populated just kind of like a home Bible study. And here you have an expert. Here you got one of those PhDs, you know, five initials after their names. This guy is coming in and boy, you know, those scribes, they've memorized the whole Old Testament. Boy, we are sure lucky to have the guy. Oh my goodness, don't sit here in the foyer. Come, come up front here. Those are the best seats. Now in in our culture, the best seats are in the back of the church, (laughs) but they'd bring them right up front. So everybody could see that this luminary of uh, biblical understanding was there in their midst. To be like, whoa, you know. They desired that kind of attention. They, they desired the best places at the feast. One of them would show up at a feast. It was like, oh, you know, it's the rabbi. My goodness. Let's, let, let's, let's bring him up to the A table, the, 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 the front table. Boy, boy, we've seen that uh, in action. You know, last summer, Pam and I uh, were in Southern California. We were at this uh, resort, and they were putting on this huge wedding there at this resort. And, and it was over a million-dollar wedding yeah, just to, to book the place. And, you know, when, when you're doing weddings and the wedding singer, right, doesn't sing Stevie Wonder. The wedding singer is Stevie Wonder. That's the kind of wedding this was. And we had the opportunity to meet the rabbi and his wife. Now, they were wonderful people, but the guy was the rabbi over a synagogue in one of the most ritzy areas in L.A., but he was always open to driving down to this place in Orange County to officiate. And people were fawning over him and telling him, oh, rabbi, we're so glad you're here. And You can kind of see the old, oh, no, 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 don't do that, but, but, but please keep it up kind of thing going on there. <laughs> And I would love to say that that's just a problem for rabbis, but uh, honest to goodness, it's just funny how it, it, it weaves its way into the church. You know, a few years ago, I was invited to go to a conference in Washington, D.C., put on by the Billy Graham organization. It was uh, a conference that was supposed to get younger leadership uh, in the church together with the, the old guard, if you will. And boy, you know, because it was a Billy Graham thing, it was kind of a who's who of speakers there. But I discovered something. There was a demarcation, a a huge line, between the people who were somebodies, you know, the people you recognize from their books and from radio and TV and the internet, and the rest of us yutzes that were there. You know, the, the people that this conference was supposedly for, we ate in one dining room, the celebrities ate in another we discovered that in order to get time with the great people, which was supposedly the point of this conference, you first had to schmooze up to their personal assistant. And if the personal assistant liked you, then you could get time with a great man. It was so sad because it was like, hey, we're somebody, you guys are the wannabes, and you talk about desire. Desiring to cross over from the great unwashed section where people were eating, to eat with the elite if you will. There was that desire, I think, in all of us to be noticed, to be recognized, to have one of these people who was really somebody take a shine to us because then we're getting somewhere in ministry. You you don't think this desire, uh, you think this desire died with the the last Pharisee? No, it's in all of us, isn't it? We all want to be recognized. We all want to be respected. We all want to have a reputation. It's that desire that gets us into trouble because catch this, you can't have that desire to be somebody and be a follower of the savior at the same time. You can't, you have gotta make up your mind whose approval you really want. Do you want the approval of men or do you ultimately want the approval of God? And when we go for the approval of men and we kind of cut ourselves off from finding our satisfaction, our fulfillment, In our relationship with God, well, uh, what's going on on the inside, which isn't good, has a funny way of working its way to the outside. Notice what Jesus said. They they love the place of being spiritual, but when the chips are down, they devour widows' houses and, for a pretense, make long prayers. How did Jesus look at these guys? They devour widows' houses. What does that mean? Well, it it meant they would use their position— To catch this, take advantage of people at their most vulnerable. Like when someone would lose their husband. In that culture, (laughs) if the hubby didn't take care of you, if he didn't leave an estate, you were in a world of hurt as a woman. Because, again, the idea of women working, the, the idea of women being able to make a living, very, very difficult under that set of circumstances. And so a husband would work their whole lives to make sure if anything happened to them that they'd be taken care of. It sounds like a pitch for life insurance. It probably is. (laughs) But the the, the bottom line was this. When someone would pass away, uh, you know, mourning was a big deal in that culture. You may have heard Bible studies before uh, about how there were professional mourners. That, that people would pay to actually come to a house and grieve and wail and throw dust up in the air. And if you didn't have the right amount of people grieving and wailing and throwing dust up in the air, it was just considered a shame above all shames. Well, this professionalism carried over to the clergy. And these Pharisees, these scribes would show up and say, Oh, we are so sorry to hear about your loss. Isn't it wonderful, though, that we as scribes believe in an afterlife? And I'm sure that if your husband, looking back from the afterlife, looked back and and, and he would probably want to say, you know, I've left this estate for my wife and my children, but but I'm really interested in spiritual things. Wouldn't it be wonderful? We're building a new wing on the local synagogue. If you make a contribution, a donation we will put up a little plaque in his name. And I'm sure God will look favorably upon you because you gave in this hour of need. Well, when someone's vulnerable, they're like, well, sure, okay. Does that sort of thing happen today? You better believe it happens today. When my step-grandfather passed away, my step-grandfather George, he was just the most jovial, uh, wonderful, uh, hardcore Irish Catholic you've ever met in your life. But when he passed away, uh, I was asked to be one of the pallbearers, at his memorial. And, and so we were invited, because it was part of our duties, to be part of what was called a requiem mass. They would have a mass uh, in, in honor of George's life. And I'd never been to one of these before. And, and it, you could always tell who the kind of Gentiles were there, because we didn't know when to kneel and when to stand and what to say. And So we sat in the back so we didn't make fools out of ourselves. But everybody else was all very well rehearsed. And then the, 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 the priest stood up and he said, yes, you know, George is in purgatory right now. Uh, whoa, that's pretty bold. Uh, you know, he's not quite in heaven yet. He still has some of his venial sins to burn off, you see. But if you make a donation to the church today, you can take years off of the time that George will be in purgatory and hasten the day he will return to heaven. Like, oh my gosh, this isn't even subtle anymore. The same thing goes on. People being taken advantage of in their time of need. And notice, as a pretense, make long prayers. In in other words, these guys would pray and pray and pray and and lay on all the thick, gooey, spiritual, syrupy stuff, but it was all just a cover-up for the fact that they didn't really have a relationship with God. Understand something. The 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 Bible is definitely pro-prayer. There's nothing wrong with praying in public. But I've discovered something. You know, a guy who probably sat through more than one uh, overly long prayer meeting, King Solomon made this observation about the fine art of prayer and and public prayer. He said this in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 1, walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools for they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, and do not let your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. You know what Solomon's advice is about prayer? I think we could sum it up. Pray long in private. Pray short in public. And, you know, and, and just a, a little a bit of advice from you know, one that's been around a few prayer meetings over time If you have to fill your prayer up with, like, little buzzwords so you can think of the next thing you're going to say when you pray, you probably need to stop praying. Will Rogers once said, never pass up a good opportunity to shut up. (laughs) And if we're praying and and, and we're, we're talking to God, and we're not talking to God like we talk to anybody else, right? I mean, obviously, God deserves our awe and respect, and he's not just our buddy in the sky. I get all of that. But, you know, when you talk to God and you're saying, Lord, you know, I just really love you, Lord, and today, Lord, I'm really excited, Lord, about what happened yesterday, Lord, and this person over here saying this to me, Lord. You know, do you talk to anybody else like that? I mean, could you imagine if I talked to my wife, Pam, like that? Pam, today we went to church, and Pam, it was really great to see you there in the front row, Pam. And uh, Pam, I really like your outfit, Pam. And (laughs) she'd be looking at me like, have you lost your mind? (laughs) What is this stuff? Be careful of... Using words like Lord or we just, you know, I think if you took the word just out of the average Christian's prayer life, they'd never be able to pray again. If, if you have to have these sort of things to keep your prayers going, it's probably time to cut it off. Pray long in private, pray short in public, but pray shortest when people are waiting to eat. I think that's probably <laughs> the best piece of advice that I can give you on that particular subject. So, understand something. Jesus is saying that one of the greatest distractions that you can get into that will separate you from your walk with God isn't being secular, it's being spiritual. It's being spiritual without a real heart for God. It's buying into the idea that it's better to look spiritual than to be spiritual. God doesn't want our empty prayers. God doesn't want our token efforts at doing something to buy ourselves another day or two of peace. God wants your heart. He wants you to be the real deal. Well, it's not just going for the reputation that can stumble us. Notice as well, it's our resources that can also be a distraction to us. Chapter 21 and verse 1 says, And he looked up. Notice this is right after he has made this statement. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he also saw a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So he said, truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in their offerings for God. But she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. Now notice he looked up. The parallel accounts tell us that Jesus was in a place called Solomon's Portico, Solomon's Porch which was uh, just off the main temple area. Now, in Solomon's Porch, they had a place for voluntary offerings, what we would call free will offerings to God. They weren't required. You didn't have to do it. But if God had been good to you and, and you just wanted to say thank you to the Lord, you know, and you just wanted to, you know, the Lord just moved on your heart to donate, they, they had a way of being able to do that. And what a beautiful thing that is. I guess the rough equivalent of the classic Calvary Chapel agape box they had there with one interesting detail attached. Remember back then, they didn't have paper money. It it was all uh, coinage. In fact, if you're going to give an offering, you couldn't give Roman coins. You had to have them transferred over, and it was called the temple shekel. That would be the only acceptable offering monetarily you could offer to God, because the Roman coins would have an, an, a graven image on them, the image of Caesar. You can't give that to God. Are you kidding? We talked a little bit about how Jesus cleansed the temple because they were uh, basically saying, hey, you know, you can't give that offering, but if you want to give a good offering, we've got approved coins here. Just uh, we'll exchange that with a little care and handling fee <laughs> attached. And Jesus wasn't having it. So, here you have this place where people can give, and they would give these temple shekels, these, these hard currencies, if you will. By the way, the official temple shekel uh, was uh, a pretty big deal. It was about 8 to 10 ounces of gold and uh, would be valued, I guess, at today's rates. Uh, with the way things are in the news, this is going to change tomorrow. But, but as far as today is concerned, probably about $600 to $1,000 for one of these coins. And so they had this provision for people who wanted to give alongside, and people did. You know, I always have this vision of that guy from the Monopoly game, you know, with the top hat, you know, and the money bag and all this stuff, coming in to, to give. And in order to give, they'd have these boxes, right? But in order to give, they would have this tuba-like brass structure on top of it to get your money into the receptacle without spilling all over the place. Seems efficient, Right. But because it was made out of brass, if you were giving, say, the temple shekel, bang, it would make a noise. You know, try dropping a coin in a tuba and see if it doesn't make a noise, <laughs> right? And if you were J.P. Got Rocks and you really wanted to impress people, you would come in and take your money bag and you would dump it in there and then people would hear, it would sound like jackpot in Vegas, you know, if you ever fly out of Vegas, you know, they have all those slot machines around there. And the two things that you hear are, first of all, Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> it just gets embedded in your brain if you have a layover there. And then you hear people actually winning. Everybody looks over when all the coins start coming out, right? It was the same kind of thing, except in reverse. JP rocks would come and... You know, this, 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 this noise, this din... This uproar would come in. And Jesus looks up, and he's watching what's going on here. And then he sees a study in contrast. A certain poor widow put in two mites. Now, the word translated mite in your New King James Bible is really interesting in the original language. The Greek word lepton, it's the same root where we get our term leaf from. It was the smallest possible Roman coinage you could have. A lepton was one sixty-fourth of the average working grunt's day's wage. And as such, it was this tiny little leaf of copper. Now imagine watching what's going on in Solomon's portico and this offering thing going on, and JP Gotrocks comes in and sounds like, you know, jackpot in reverse, boom, 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 boom. boom. And then this widow comes up and it's tink, tink. (laughs) I'm sure the average person was like, you know, come on, why bother? Let me see a show. I ask, How many of you like getting pennies in your change? You really enjoy that, right? So i use credit card. I don't want to use cash. They're going to give me pennies back. What am I going to do? I'm going to put them in the ashtray thing of my car, and they, they, they will stay there forever because I don't like pennies, right? I'm like, why are you even bothering with this sort of thing? I, I can remember back on staff at Calvary Costa Mesa when one of our jobs is to help process the offerings. And man, when people give change and pennies we look at each other and we go, oh, what a drag. It's going to take twice as long just counting out all these pennies up there. And I'm sure when this widow went tink, tink, there were probably some of the staff around there going, oh, boy, here we go. And dig those leptons out. But Jesus didn't have the same attitude. Notice, he said, truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God, but she out of her poverty has put in all the livelihood that she had. Boy, you can't judge a book by its cover, can you? But you can sure understand something else. Jesus judged not the act of giving, but the attitude behind it. You see, if we get all involved with the act of giving, and and it's a very subtle thing that can afflict us, obviously there's individuals who will give to a church because they think they're buying position and power. You know, I've had this conversation, unfortunately, more than once around here where someone will come up and say, you know, I don't like what's going on right now. I don't like this over here, and I don't like the way you do that over there, and I want to see this change over there. And I'll say, well, you know, I'll take that under advisement. You know, we're, we're certainly our works aren't complete in the sight of God. We could always have room to grow. And when I say I'll just pray about it, they look at me and they go, do you know how much I give to this church? <laughs> and you know what I tell them? No, I don't. Early on, one of the wisest things I think I ever did was decide from the get-go, from the startup that I wouldn't be a part of processing checks or, or credit cards or things like that with people who faithfully support the work of this ministry. And this is a safeguard for me, right? Because if you are a major donor to this church, God bless you, we appreciate that, but if I know who you are, right, I'm going to treat you different. I just know how fallen and craven and sin-shriveled my heart is, right? I'm going look at you a little bit different than some of the other people who are here every Sunday and never give nothing. And if I knew you were one of those people every Sunday and never give nothing, and you come up to me and go, Pastor, I need prayer, I'm just going to be looking at him like, really? You actually want my time after freeloading this whole time? I can't believe you. I know how corrupt I am. So here's my solution. I don't know. That's up to you and God and that's the way it should always be. This widow didn't have a lot to give, but as a percentage, what she gave was astronomical. God looked at that and said, that's the kind of giving I'm looking for. Why? It's not because Jesus is after your dough. Did you know that? Well, I remember in my days as a non-Christian, the few times we went to church, I don't know, it must have been the sovereign hand of Satan or something, but, but every time we went to church, it was Big Giving Sunday, right? They were launching some massive building program. And dig deep in your wallets. We're gonna do another offering here. And don't you wanna fill out this pledge for the next 50 years to help us? And as thoroughgoing non-believers, you know, we'd roll our eyes, and, and I just remember hearing so many times: all church people are after is your money. And God forgive us for portraying that kind of awful image of Christianity to the world because they didn't come up with it on their own. We're kind of guilty as charged in a lot of ways, right? But the other thing I kind of figured out being on the other side of things now that I am a believer in Christ is this, when people put their hands in their hips, they're, oh, all they're after is my money. You know, uh, yeah, granted, there are churches that are trying to get into your wallet, but does that say something a little bit about you too? You don't want the church in your wallet. Why? Because you like your dough. I want to keep it. I'm not going to give it some spiritual thing out there are you kidding have important things to buy like that new electric dog polisher I had my eye on you know (laughs) Jesus put it this way and boy see if this doesn't get through to your heart a little bit in in the book of Luke he he said this and I think it's so important for us to understand in Luke chapter 12 he said where your treasure is what there your heart will be also. See, Jesus doesn't care so much about your treasure as much as he cares about your heart. Because if we somehow divorce ourselves from this idea that somehow our money doesn't matter, our money does matter to God because it's a really good indicator where we stand with the Lord. You know, we may be in for a rude awakening someday. You know, I don't know if you ever watch these, you know, crime dramas or these documentaries on con artists and how they get away with things. You know how they uh, track down the average con artist? They follow the money, right? Because there's always a money trail. And sooner or later, it it catches up with them, no matter how intricate the con is, no matter how elaborate the sting is. the, 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 The money tells the story. Can I ask you a question? If people followed the money trail in your life, and suddenly being a Christian was a crime. Would they have enough financial data based on what you spend your money on to convict you of the fact that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? Pretty convicting question. You know, again, beware the distraction of the mean green. You know, Randy Stonehill, the famous uh, Christian rock star pioneer in Christian music, uh, once said this I dreamed of being famous, wanted my name to be a household word. I thought it would thrill me, and then I saw it would kill me. Now, it strikes me as a little absurd. Uh, you know, he said, I used to dream of being a rich man. I swore I'd have it all someday. But once you taste it, you'll find that it isn't worth a dime till you're free enough to give it away. That's what God wants to bring to our lives, that kind of freedom. If you don't have that kind of freedom, maybe you're a little distracted. Notice in verse 5, Then some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations. Boy, you want to talk about an understatement. The temple of that day. uh, Herod, by that time, had been working on this temple for over 48 years. And if you ever go to Israel with us, boy, when you see the stuff that this Herod the Great built, he was an amazing builder and architect. 48 years had gone into this temple. By the way, that temple that Jesus was in, when it be finished until roughly 67 A.D. They were still working on the thing. But it was a sight to behold. And, you know, today uh, you go there, and one of the the amazing sights that you see on a tour of Israel, they take you through this place called the Rabbi's Tunnel. And it's this area that goes underground by the western, or what's known as the Wailing Wall, uh, the only wall that's left that that abutted the the, uh, Temple Mount area there. And one of the most amazing things you see on this tour is there is one stone there that they will point out to you that catch this is 46 feet long 10 feet high and 10 feet wide and it's perfectly placed you cannot fit a slip of paper between the stones that are in there now this stone alone weighs 415 tons Uh, to put this in perspective for you a loaded 747 jet weighs 320 tons this is one stone perfectly placed, right? To this day, engineers still have no idea how they did it. Even with our modern we're not really sure we could do the same thing. Even in our day, some of them said, look at these stones, they were probably like, Yeah, boy, you want to talk about something that's always going to be there. Something you can always count on. That stone ain't going nowhere. And isn't it wonderful that we have the house of God that ain't going nowhere? Well, Jesus added, These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone will be left upon another will not be thrown down. You see, Jesus saw something was going on with the Sadducees who didn't even believe really that it was possible to have a relationship with God but loved the tradition. They were running the temple. The Pharisees that had so reinterpreted the law of God had so lowered it that they completely externalized it so that they could keep it. The Herodians that were like, isn't it great that we have this temple? Boy, it even impresses the Romans, aren't we? You had all these people that had missed the whole point of the temple. And even Jesus' disciples were on the edge of missing this point because they said, well, as long as we got this temple, there's something you can count on in life, a building. Boy, <laughs> have you ever run into a Christian who made the mistake of putting their faith in a building? You know, well, I'm a Christian because I come to Calvary Christian Fellowship every Sunday. You see the twists and turns you have to go through to get to this place. That must mean there's some kind of commitment there, right? <laughs> you know, or, or uh, I'm a Christian because I was involved with this massive building project. And isn't it isn't wonderful. We have this sanctuary that seats 5,000 people and, and, and so on. And, and look at this, you know, we're an entire, I mean, I've seen some of these churches. they like an entire city block. And people are like, Yeah. Yeah, there's permanence. That's always going to be there. Look at this wonderful place. And, and God must be there because we've got this big, big building going on. Be careful. doesn't mean God isn't in It doesn't mean that God didn't provide. And I've seen some people, believe it or not, who are able to pull off big without selling out their hearts. But it's tough. It's tough. Because you find yourself kind of like Nebuchadnezzar. Is this not the sanctuary which I have built? And you sort of bask in the glory. He you start thinking, oh, God must have done a great work here because look at the facility we have. Now, nobody says that about here, right? You know, I, I tell people, we specialize in early industrial park decor around here. Someone comes back to this church. It ain't because of the architecture. But there were those that looked upon this and said, boy, the temple of the Lord's here. We don't have to worry. God will always be here because we've got this building. You know, the scripture says there's only one temple of the Lord that we need to be concerned about. In the book of First Corinthians, chapter six, the apostle Paul said this. Or do you not know, verse nineteen, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You see, buildings come and buildings go. And in a way, I'm kind of glad that we have this building, because if the rapture happens, right? Um, You know, our landlord, I hope they get raptured too. I don't know where they stand spiritually. But, you know, it's not really going to matter. You know, uh, some other business is going to come in here and basically take our space over. Big deal. But if you've invested your blood, sweat, and tears to build this massive facility, you know what happens? There's a three-generation rule in Christian circles. The first generation is part of a genuine work of God from the heart And they are the ones that do wonderful things. The second generation comes along and maintains what the first generation did. And the third generation comes along and inherits all the goodies the first generation built, but share none of the heart. Think about how many mainline denominations. It's the story of their life. See, I don't want to build a hangar for heathens. bottom line. You know, I, I don't want to build some nice facilities. So that afterwards, the Antichrist, oh, come on in. We've got this great building over here. and You guys can come in and worship the Lord there. Uh, well, our Lord, our infernal Lord. Yeah. Travel light. That's what the Bible says. And don't let your money and don't let places take the place of God. Distractions. What are we saying here today? Here's, here's the bottom line. Nouns. They get us. Remember Scholastic Rock? Nouns. You know, anything that you can know and anything you can show, you know they're nouns. You know they're nouns. You know. Nouns are what get us. Because we have a much easier time, catch this, putting our faith in people, places, and things than we do in the true and living God. How distracted are you today? How distracted are you? You know, are, are, are you so canvassing for a reputation among men you forget that judgment day isn't going to be conducted by majority vote? Only one person's opinion is going to matter. Do you live that way? Secondly, you know, do you conduct your finances in such a way that, you know, the old saying is you can't take it with you. Yeah, but you can send it ahead because if you use your time, your talent, your treasure to further the kingdom of God, you will not lose your reward. Or are you distracted? Are you too invested down here to really care about what's going on up there? And, And finally, is your faith based on the fact that you've got a comfortable place to park your carcass on Sunday morning? Is that it? Because you always sit in the same seat on Sunday morning, world without end, amen. (laughs) And there's one thing I can count on. This is my seat. And boy, when a new person comes to church and they sit in your seat, you're like, I I can't worship God that way. They're in my seat. (laughs) If it takes sitting in your right seat to worship the Lord, chances are you got your eyes in the wrong place. Here's God's word to us. Simplify. Simplify. The Apostle Paul talked about the simplicity of devotion to Jesus. That is the only thing that's going to keep us on track. That is the only thing that is going to keep us from being distracted and ultimately deceived. It's the only thing that's going to chase away fear in these crazy days and replace it with faith. Who are you living for? Who are you living for really when it comes down to it? And only you and God can settle that. Father, I thank you that your word challenges us so utterly. And Jesus, your words, to, I think about the, the two on the road to Emmaus, they said, boy, didn't his words burn in our hearts. And, uh, you know, I think sometimes your word really does give us spiritual heartburn, Lord, because you reveal exactly what's going on deep down inside. And Father, we're, we're sorry. I'm sorry personally for the times where I've been doctrinally correct, but my heart's been off where i bowed down before the idols of uh, reputation or, or, or put my faith and had my peace because there was money or, or lost my peace because there was not, or, or even identified with a certain church or even a certain movement and said, well, I must be okay because I'm a card-carrying member. Forgive me for that, but forgive us all for that, Lord. We're all cut out of that same cloth. And I get the funny feeling that if you were sitting here with us today, you'd say the same thing to us that you said to your disciples back then. Let the one who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Guard our hearts, Lord. And thank you, Lord, for the opportunity now to celebrate communion because I can't think of any better way to get us back on track than to remember what really matters. Nothing we do for you, but everything about what you, Jesus, did for us. Prepare our hearts now as we get ready to commune with you. In Jesus' name, amen.